Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Catholic Halos podcast. I'm Veronica Ambuel, Director of Communications for the Diocese of Colorado Springs, and I'm joined today by Deacon Patrick Jones, who's an award-winning author of Catholic fiction and the founder of Catholic Halos, uh, Deacon Doug Flynn, who's our Chancellor and General Counsel here at the Diocese, and today we are also joined by Father Jim Barron, who is the uh, director of, I, I believe, Father Jim, correct me, it's Mission and Strategic Planning. That's right. Uh, for, for the diocese. Uh, so so welcome. Be- before we start discussing our topic for today, uh, Father Jim, would you mind leading us in an opening prayer? Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora or pro nobis, nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, Father, so that's okay. That's perfect. Um, for those of you who listened to our podcast last week, you'll you'll realize you'll remember that uh, we had started uh, working our way through the Second Constitution in Vatican II, and by the end of the podcast, it became very clear that. We needed somebody smarter than us to talk about this. And Father Jim happened to be standing outside my office at the time. So I asked him if he would be willing to join us. And he said yes. So welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, um, and and just also to uh, remind our listeners, we've been going through these uh, Vatican II documents because um, Pope Francis had requested that... Um, the, the faithful reread the documents of Vatican II, kind of leading up to this holy year in um, 2025. Um, Father Jim, can you do you have any um, thoughts on why why uh, Pope Francis would have made that request in connection with the the holy year? Well, I think a lot of theologians, bishops, priests, cardinals. Um, and many lay people still understand that we're we're just a few years in the grand scheme of things after the council. Like it's it's still worthwhile unpacking what the council has left us, and especially approaching this jubilee year with a lot of the synodal processes that have been going on. My hunch is, and I don't have any kind of insider information, but my hunch is that the Holy Father wants to keep revisiting this uh, important series of not just documents, but the the thought and the desires of the council fathers um, and, and the life of the church in this next era, if you will. And, and I think it's really worth doing. It's meant to be a, a source of kind of uni- unity and, and helping to orient us in what really feels like a disorienting time. So that's, that's my hunch. And that fits with what we've kind of blundered our way through uh, with the documents so far. Uh, and the the beauty of a Catholic halo um, is we're sharing the spiritual journey and challenging and inviting each other forward as we run towards Christ, uh, each in our own lives, in our own ways. But we often see each other's blind spots and can challenge each other on that. Hmm. Um, and <laughs> the... Uh, the we're in a fascinating time 
of uh, where a lot of there, there's the novus ordo mass and there's the vetus ordo mass, um, the new order and the old order mass. And when I went through and I've read the documents and I'm reading through what uh, Sacra Sanctum Concilium said, uh, it's, it's, it became really clear to me anyway, I'm not sure we have any idea what Vatican II was actually saying. So to your point, Father Jim, we're very much in that the early days after the Vatican Council as far as the church is concerned. And that's what one of the things we were talking about in a previous podcast of you read church history and you read about the council of uh, Trent or uh, the Nicene council and the implementation of the next 200 years is kind of contained within the next two sentences. But, (laughs) but to those who lived it, those uh, six to eight generations of people it was it was big uh, challenge and, and turmoil as the change moved through the church, mm-hmm. and the church figured out what was going on. Father that makes Jim, sense. Um, I I think you brought this up um, earlier. Um, this is all also happening in conjunction with the the synodal process. Mm-hmm. Um, we just finished up the diocesan phase basically, you know, over the summer. And now it's kind of um, going up to, moving up to kind of regional and national um, meetings. And then ultimately with the, with the synod um, of bishops in Rome in October of 2023. But in, in going over the Synod process uh, report that um, our diocese submitted. One of the interesting things that was brought up um, is that often some there were some people who you know came to some of the listening sessions that we had and said that they they were um, I mean for lack of a better word like looking for the Vatican II Church as if that were different than like the previous church. So they were, you know, in, in expressing their um, maybe unhappiness with certain things going on in their parishes. um, They, 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 they they wanted some, there was a perception that, um, that, that, that Vatican II hadn't like hit yet. And I, and I, I was wondering if you could speak to that. I mean, um, especially here, like in the, you know, looking at Lumen Gentium, the constitution on the church, I mean, what was there really, was that really all about in a sense, reinventing the church? Uh, no, not at all. Um, I'll say something that, usually comes up in the context of marriage prep or marriage counseling, false expectations are resentments waiting to happen. And I think with expectations either during the time of the council or um, interpretations of either pastors or news outlets, various talking heads about 
you know, quote, the spirit of Vatican Council, or the Second Vatican Council, or what people were expecting versus what they've seen. And not that what we've seen is exactly the intention of the council, but the expectation tended to be almost a complete, um, you know, tearing down and starting from the ground up. You know, the some of the famous l- beloved songs, let us build a church, let us, you know, sing a new church into being, that kind of suggests that we've we've got to find the get it right as if it were ours to do. And it's always overlooking the fact that it's Christ's church and Jesus established something that he would guide through the Holy Spirit. And so it's, it's sort of presumptuous for us to decide we need to make this thing happen, especially if we have to kind of start from scratch. And that's, I resent that. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, 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 and I'm happy for pushback, but I think, uh, I think that there was just is smart Alec is all that was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, you know, again, that, that expectation that was really, I think, misled um, for whatever reason has led to a lot of folks scratching their heads thinking this isn't what we were promised when they set out thinking that it was going to be sort of a, a very um, re- like a reversed pyramid church where it's really the the democratic approach to things. It's sort of vote by councils and um, it's majority rule, if you will. Uh, and in that, that mentality, I think was expressed in some of the frustrations voiced throughout the synod process of, isn't this supposed to be the way that we get to decide things or it's misunderstood or misrepresented, if you will, as that. Whereas what it's meant to be is a time for the church to listen to itself and to hear where we are from that then to start to calibrate, if you will, our pastoral responses. It's not a chance to redefine doctrine or reject dogmas or change out morality um, or your moral evaluations in the life of the church. It's, it's really to say, okay, where are we? And how far is that from where we need to be? And then how do we get there? Uh, I think the, oh, sorry, go ahead. The setting of expectations is a huge, um, barrier to um, having dialogue between what often ends up being uh, opposing sides vehemently uh, ultimately agreeing when you start understanding what each other is saying, uh, but talking past each other because of it. And, and one of the things that we got stuck on uh, last time was uh, in reading through uh, Lumen Gentium, for example, paragraphs 13 and 14. It's almost like each numbered section is written by a different group or person, and it's fairly disjointed. And so one of the questions we came upon was, okay, how are we supposed to read this? Because you go through and you read, it's a very different experience reading the Catechism of the Council of Trent, for example, which is a cohesive document that that flows and has a beauty to it um, the, and a clarity to it that, that I just found fascinating mm-hmm. and, and absent from the, the Vatican II documents in a stark way, which points to, okay, how do I catch up with what Vatican II is trying to say to me and how do I learn how to read these? Hmm. Well, one of the unique things about Vatican II, as opposed to Trent, was that you had a much greater representation of bishops from around the world. Certain 
the church had not existed in certain parts of the world during the time of the Council of Trent. And so with the, the influx of new languages in particular, you have also uh, very, you know, levels of competence in Latin to varying degrees. You don't have everybody with a great facility in Latin. And, and I think a lot of the, the, the documents and the process of writing them relied heavily upon that. There was a time uh, early on in, I believe, the second and third sessions, it might have even been always in, already in the first session, where there was they had established proposed commissions. They wanted to have 10 uh, delegated commissions of bishops that nobody really knew. You had to vote on them. And then one bishop immediately when they began the session stood up and said, all right, let's take a break. Um, it's like, wait, we just started. Then another bishop stood up and said, I agree, we need a break. And then they kind of had kind of introduced an opportunity to meet according to language groups. Uh, and so bishops would meet, you know, German speaking, English speaking, French speaking, Spanish speaking, uh, and of course the Italian contingent. And that that kind of was part of the when they talk about an energy and excitement and the council, like that's the first time that it really happened because the governing language had been Latin, but you know, unfortunately not enough people spoke it with a real fluency. And I think in some ways, the documents which were finally voted upon and approved in Latin, um, you know, as much as they hopefully had scholars with them, there's a certain risk of not understanding the wording of things or exactly how things are presented. And it's going to be an issue either way, whatever language you present these things in, Tagalog or against Spanish or English, like, there's always going to be some language that not everybody speaks. So I think Latin is a fair settlement. Um, like we're just all at the same disadvantage, <laughs> but it, it does again, introduce the risk. And then you have to translate from Latin into the, the different vernacular languages. And that's not always an easy task. So, you know, there can be a sense that was in, that was communicated through the original text that isn't always captured well or eloquently in the vernacular. Um, it happens with liturgy. It happens with scripture. It happens with church documents. And so how do we read this? Because, uh, for example, paragraph 13 gives, I'll just read the first sentence from the two paragraphs. Um, 13 starts off, all men are called to belong to the new people of God. Which, okay, that's working to define not, not the church so much as the, call, the universal call. And so you have to understand that. And if I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, Father Jim, to go back into the Latin gives clarity to um, the church is who all people are called to belong to. Um, but that, that universal call doesn't mean all people are part of the church. Is that is that a fair assessment? In some ways, yeah. The, so the Latin is ad novum populum dei cuncti vocantur homines. And you know, that the English translation is fairly direct with that. So there you have to get into the theological distinction. And the people of God, we hear that and we think, okay, that's everybody who's not a cleric. But with the intention of the council, and this was an, an important point brought up by Ratzinger, Cardinal, uh, well then Father Ratzinger, who was a paratus to the council, basically a theological advisor, he said, like, you are a part of the people of God only if you are grafted onto Christ. And 
meaning that Christ is the lumen gentium, the light to the nations, which is the very first sentence of the document. And it's by being grafted onto Christ that you are made a part of the people of God, which is also the body of Christ, unity with God through Jesus. Um, and in some ways, that also would then have to be the context through which you understand some of the later controversies about defining the the, the church, you know, subsisting in um, or this subsisting in the Catholic Church. Uh, but we don't have to go there right now. But there is something about belonging to the people of God, not just the people in the pews, also the clergy, the religious, everybody, by in virtue of their being grafted onto Christ through communion with Him. Um, but this does leave some of the mystery open as far as communion through simply baptism, through all of the full initiation of the sacraments. I mean, that's why the fullness of this resides in the Catholic Church, which has all of the sacraments given by Christ. But there is a mysterious belonging in some way, even in a broken way, um, for those who are baptized. And that might be a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. But uh, oh, but Jesus Jesus talks about those uh, those groups that uh, cast out demons in Jesus's name mm -hmm. when when the apostle uh, I think it was uh, John who came up and, and so we we told him no uh, and Jesus said don't hinder when they're casting out demons in my name even when they don't follow me yeah um. And if that's not a description of uh, non-Catholic Christians, I don't know what that is. Um, so that aspect has been with us uh, from the Gospels all along. Mm -hmm. the, the church, I think, regards this as, as one, a, a heartbreaking reality, that there is a brokenness, a rupture in communion that's real. And we acknowledge that, but also at the same time, there is a mysterious communion that we have through baptism with those who are not fully in communion with the church, with their sacraments. So yeah, it's, it's not kind of a, a very clear cut and dry explanation of things. And using that term people of God, I think in this context, it's intended for the fact that all are called to communion with Christ and that is achieved most fully and perfectly through the Catholic church because of the and so sacraments then are there. And so then the first sentence of number 14, almost when, when you read it initially, it seems like it's in opposition to, but it's really fulfilling and enfleshing um, as you go. So the first sentence says, this sacred council wishes to turn its attention firstly to the Catholic faithful, which is a subset of the people of God in number 13. Mm -hmm. basing itself, and now I'm reading the second sentence also, basing itself upon sacred scripture and tradition, it teaches that the church now sojourning on earth as an exile is necessary for salvation. And so to, that's clearly establishing, and then it goes on in number 21 to establish the Catholic hierarchy, reestablish, rename, resupport. Um, and so very much like you said, Vatican II didn't really change, redefine, start all over again, the church. Um, the whole idea was to open the windows and let fresh air in. I, I think also we have to remember that 
there is no text without a context. So when you consider the, the march of the church through history, the context in which the church is living is the context to which she speaks. And you know, during the time of the Council of Trent, you had people who were either still alive or direct disciples of those individuals who broke away from communion with the church. That audience is going to be slightly different than generations, centuries later, where there are very sincere, very devout, and you know, dare I say very holy um, Christians who are not in communion with the Catholic Church. How do we understand this? How do we present this and speak to that context? And so I think does you know, this kind of going back to what you were pointing out is, um, yeah, there is a reality of this that yes, the church remains the remains necessary for salvation, as it says in there. And how do we ex, ex, uh, how do we explain that? How do we understand that? Um, you know, as you know, as Catholics, we say it's a both and proposition. So, you know, yes, the church is necessary for salvation, and those who are joined to Christ, especially through baptism. Um, are joined to him in in a mysterious way. Um, but those who know that the church, the uh, full communion with the Catholic church is, uh, is necessary because that is full communion with Christ, and yet they refuse to enter it or remain in it, then they could not be saved at the end of that paragraph. Like that's, there's a lot being said there, but it has to do with the fact that the church remains necessary for our salvation because she is the body of Christ. It's almost a logical syllogism. If Christ is necessary for salvation and the church is the body of Christ, the church is necessary for salvation. Call that Catholic algebra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you throw Mary in there as uh, being both mother of the church and the church, and, and then you start scratching heads. <laughs> well, yeah, Father, you mentioned the uh, that, that sentence that talks about the church subsisting in the Catholic church, and that was one of the sentences I got through. I was like, I need somebody smarter than me to help explain that. Hmm especially at the end of it, I'll just read the sentence. This church, referring to the Church of Christ, so it's church with a capital C, constituted and organized in the world as a society, subsists in the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. Although many elements of sanctification and of truth are found outside of its visible structure. So I think that's what you were touching on, is that you know, centuries after, four or five centuries after, you know, some of those original Protestants broke away, this council seems like was recognizing that those who may still be united to us in, through baptism, even if they're not in full communion with the Bishop of Rome and the bishops in communion with him. Yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of important emphases in this to understand. This was a real controversy when it was that the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church on earth. Um, and it was it's not a turning away from that language, but I think a refining of it and subsisted in, subsists in, is that inasmuch as the fullness of the Church of Christ is present on this, on this earth, it is in the Catholic Church. Now that's able to leave some kind of gray for that mystery of the broken communion that we have with those baptized non-Catholics. Um, but also I think it's it's kind of, if you will, working backwards from the fact that heaven is nothing other than communion with God and Jesus Christ. And to use that sort of Catholic algebra, um, then if we are able to have communion with Christ in this world, and that is a sort of a, a feature of um, being Christian, 
if that is what it means to be in the a, a part of the communion of the church, then you know, then there is that necessary belonging to the the church in this life, even if there is that sort of um, the partial belonging through baptism outside of the church. Uh, this, I don't think it should be as controversial as it seems to be with some people. And I think it's really kind of died down because it's been explained. And the catechism um, presents this, I think, in a much more thoughtful and reflective manner. But to just read this for the first time, it seems to be giving ground. But I, I think they're kind of giving a further distinction that helps to refine the fact that the church remains that pillar and mainstay of the truth. And it remains the communion that we have in Jesus Christ as the people of God and the body of Christ. Um, but it has a reference beyond itself. You know, it's possible to be a member of the Catholic Church in full communion, and yet somebody can damage their communion with Christ. You know, mortal sin, somebody who's apostatized. So, you know, there are some mysteries in these things, but I do think it is a refining and a furthering of the definition, not a change of it. Um, Father Barron, um, going back to something you said earlier um, about, the, you know, a lot of the misunderstandings that surrounded Vatican II when it, when it was first, um, when these documents were first published, and um you kind of pointed to, you know, some of the the coverage that it received in the media. I'm and and I do kind of recall, um, and and this is it's hazy in my mind now because it was so many years ago. But it it did seem like maybe some of the deliberations that were going on during Vatican II, as as you mentioned, they were having these discussions in their small groups and things like that in some cases got reported as if it was like, um, final, um, a, a finalized statement, you know? So, um, and I almost am wondering, hopefully I'm not stretching too much here and saying this, but if some of that isn't happening around the synod process, like for example, in, in Germany, that's of course gotten a ton of attention where, um, you have people just saying different things and um, it may be in, in the way it's reported or in, in a certain, maybe even um, superficially reported, it seems as if the church has made a definitive turn in a certain direction. And would that be a fair comparison, would you say? Um, you know, I, I don't know. My, my initial instinct is to say you know, there are a couple different cases all under the umbrella of synodality that are in some ways approaching it in different ways. And part of that certainly is being misrepresented. Um, you know, one of the, the blessings and the curses of modern media is how the narrative gets written before the story's finished. Um, you know, you saw this with like people coming back from Vietnam, you know, their fathers who were coming back from world wars two, Korean war, they were in some ways brought back as kind of heroes. And yet, that was the first war that had so much media attention and on the ground journalism that was kind of writing the narrative again. And, um, and th that's oversimplifying it, but you know, you had the people in the pews, if you will, like back home, hearing things, reading things, watching things that started to shape their opinion of it. And so I think with the different 
synodal questions going on right now, yeah, there's certainly some of that. As I said, the narrative is being written before the story's complete. Um, and we always have to be cautious of that. But let's face it, once you put something out there that does define at least some parameter of how people think about a subject. So with what's going on in Germany, you know, you've got some, yeah, some real challenges uh, that are and not necessarily healthy challenges to the church. Um, when you have Cardinal Casper saying, pump the brakes, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're not going to do the church any service. Okay. Then that says something. Um, whereas the, the synodal process that's, that Pope Francis is encouraged throughout the world. There's some confusion about, you know, what's the purpose of it? Does it have an end? It, some, thought it was a great opportunity to exercise habits of dialogue and listening. And if that's all it was meant to accomplish, great. It wasn't clear if it was meant to accomplish something beyond that. And that's where it creates room for suspicion or um, uncertainty and distrust. And I think I have to be aware of that too. So I, I don't know if I'm really answering your question very well, but I think there is a real concern about how things are framed and the expectations that, that accompany that narrative framework. So as we're going forward um, with uh, continuing through the other constitutions, um, is it a f correct f um, reference point uh, of context to say that Vatican II collectively reaffirms all of prior revelation about Christ's full revelation through the church, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and then is saying, and here's what we're emphasizing about it now, not to exclude anything that's come before, but we want to focus on these things now. Is that a, is that a just way of seeing it? I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's a healthy way to look at it. It's certainly not, as some would describe it, a rupture. You hear this phrase, the hermeneutic of continuity. And of course, we have to look at it that way. Otherwise, we would be participating in something that Christ himself didn't establish. Um, but yeah, to look at it as this is a representation or sort of a, um, maybe not a representation, but th this is proclaiming the gospel in such a way that modern man might be able to hear it and understand it better. But it's also a call to the body of Christ itself and internally an inward looking reference of, you know, and this is how we understand ourselves and how we present ourselves to the world as Catholics. Well, Father, the pearl for me was uh, when you said there is no text without context. That really was helpful. And I thank you for trying to give us a little more of that context. And I, uh, I think you've in my mind, proven, proven us right, that we did find somebody who had a better grasp of the context to help us. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today's episode of the Catholic Halos podcast. Just a reminder that um, you can find this episode and all past episodes of Catholic Halos on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and uh, several other platforms. So feel free to check us out there. Uh, before we close, um, Deacon Doug, would you mind leading us in a closing prayer? Certainly. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, benedictus fructus ventris tu Jesus. Santa, Santa Maria, Maria Mater, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc in anora mortis nostre. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this episode of the Catholic Halos podcast. <laughs>